0: It was the first day of jury selection for the fraud trial of infamous Silicon Valley CEO Elizabeth Holmes. At the back of the courtroom, a man wearing a baseball cap and puffer jacket pulled something from his pocket. It was a large Rice Krispie treat. And as he opened it, the sound was so loud, others struggled to hear the judge's voice.
1: My name's Hanson. I fix up old cars for a living.
0: Hanson seemed like any old courtroom observer, although perhaps one with a softer than usual spot for the defendant.
1: Elizabeth and I are the only two people not being paid to be here.
0: Journalists were intrigued. Who was this masked man? Why was he talking so much to all the reporters? And did he know Elizabeth Holmes?
1: Do I know her? Does anyone know her? What does it even mean to know someone these days?
0: Today on the Read Out Loud, Stats Weekly Biotech podcast, we reveal the hilarious identity of the man who calls himself Hansen. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. <laughs> and I'm Damian Cardi.
0: It's Thursday, September 16th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: An about face from the FDA on the review of a potential treatment for ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease then we'll get an inside look at a groundbreaking
2: arm amputation surgery that makes a phantom hand seem real, joined by Stats Gideon Gill.
0: We'll start by solving the Theranos mystery and chat about the rest of the week in biotech.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: Hey you, Maria. What you doing? Hey Danielle. Just reviewing some hot-off-the-press pharmacokinetic data, and thinking about our podcast. You? Oh, not much. Just watching some immune cells destroy cancer cells here on the scope. And of course, thinking about the podcast. Let's introduce it to everyone. Oh, sure. Well, I'm Maria, and my background is in transcription factors and diabetes, and now I lead molecule teams. And I'm Danielle. I'm just your simple welder mechanic who now deconstructs cancer cells. We are the new hosts for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar," the award-winning science podcast from Genentech. Each show, we mix it up with biologists, neurologists, immunologists, all sorts of ologists about the very latest in science. So, if you can't get enough of those ologists, grab a beverage and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcast, or find us at gene.com/podcast. That's g-e-n-e.com/podcast.
2: For anyone confused about the cold open of this episode, that was a dramatic reading of a news story from NPR's Bobby Allen this week. He's covering the Theranos trial, as are many reporters, and they were all treated to a surprise guest. Does one of you want to reveal the identity of the man once called Hanson?
1: I'm going to let Meg do that. But before you go, the, the the crinkling the crinkling of the rice krispie treat played played a, a pivotal role in the story. <laughs>
0: It sure did. Uh, Hanson turns out to be the father of Elizabeth Holmes' partner or the grandfather of her baby. So this guy who went to the trial, pretended to be this detached onlooker who was just there to make sure the press was fair to Elizabeth Holmes, then shows up as the trial gets underway wearing a suit, walking with her as part of her entourage. And it turns out that, you know, he is family.
1: Yeah. I mean, this story, when I read this story, I just my jaw dropped. Right. You're like and of all the crazy things that have happened during the, the entire Theranos saga, this one just sort of encapsulates that all. Because, <laughs> you know, here is this guy, you know, in the in the sort of lead up to the trial, kind of hanging out with reporters like and, and sort of pretending to be this, like you said, like this gadfly, a guy who is going to sort of be watching them. Um, and the reporters are like, who, who is this dude? Uh, you know, he's giving them all this kind of weird information about who he is that he fixes old cars. And, and then we find out, yeah, he's completely, totally related to, you know, by, I guess, by birth of a grandchild or soon to be married to Elizabeth Holmes.
0: And he is also like a prominent citizen in San Diego. This <laughs> oh, is yeah. a, a family that owns these major hotels. Um, and so this is like hotel magnate is opening a Rice Krispie tree in the back of the the room where the fraud trial is about to start. Um, and the, he, he not only has Hanson as a name, but apparently on Instagram, according to this phenomenal NPR story, which literally reads like, uh, it should be like the next arrested development <laughs> trailer. Um. On Instagram he goes by Blitz and Bill, which they think might be a reference to an old car, the Blitz and Benz, um, because they own a private museum that houses vintage cars. Um, so maybe that's where the whole I fix old cars for a living.
1: <laughs> Everyone <laughs> but- should go read the story. Um, it was again, it's Bobby Allen, reporter at NPR, who wrote this story. And it's I think it's gonna be like the best story about the Theranos trial that I that I read.
0: I don't know. There have already been some amazing twists and turns like the elizabeth holmes impersonators now we've got hansen i just cannot wait to see what comes next well
2: i was going to say this this story was something of a godsend just as someone paying attention to the theranos trial because it was interesting and granted the the justice system does not exist for my personal entertainment so this isn't a criticism but the early testimony in the theranos trial has been related to the financial minutiae of the company and some of the like technical aspects of running a lab that hasn't really lent itself to dramatic coverage, Elizabeth Lopato, who uh, is covering the trial for The Verge, her lead the other day was, it was around the time that the defense counsel referred to deferred revenue that I began to feel genuinely bad for the members of the jury in the wire fraud trial of Elizabeth Holmes, (laughs) and I see where she's coming from. So, um, you know, keeping tabs on it, uh, there may yet be twists and turns in the legalistic sense. We don't know whether, uh, as we've mentioned, Elizabeth Holmes herself will take the stand, but so far it is playing out less like a Law and Order episode and more like like reading a technical manual of a microfluidics machine.
0: Well, shout out to Liz, my old colleague from Bloomberg News. We uh, we were we worked together for several years there Um, in other pop culture news. Anybody want to take on Nicki Minaj?
1: (laughs) This is where we can talk about swollen testicles for the first time on the podcast. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Enough said. There you go. (laughs)
0: Okay. <laughs> moving moving on. on. In other COVID news. Um, Damien, Regeneron this week, uh, big purchase from the government for the monoclonal antibody cocktail.
2: That's right. So the federal government is spending $2.94 billion to stock up on Regeneron's treatment for COVID-19, which as we've seen um in multiple clinical trials can be very, very effective at basically keeping people who have been exposed to the virus or who've contracted the virus from getting so sick that they need to be hospitalized which is obviously um a, a massively like utile thing um during the pandemic and it's kind of interesting because yeah we, we've spent so much time like as a society talking about vaccination and uh you know the efficacy of these vaccines the reticence of so many people to get them but kind of quietly in the background regeneron has built this massive business based on the necessity of these treatments which in a way is you know kind of the the demand for them is sort of inversely related to vaccine uptake, right? I mean, it's it, I think most of the people who would be getting this treatment are likely not vaccinated, and we know geographically that the demand for for Regeneron's antibody kind of dovetails with an absence of vaccination.
1: Yeah, Damien, I, mean, I mean, it's crazy. Like even in states like Florida, right, where uh, the governor is sort of pushing—I don't want to say promoting, but sort of pushing—the Regeneron antibody. As a treatment for COVID instead of vaccinations.
0: Yeah, it was never supposed to be an either-or situation. And people actually thought that the antibodies really were not going to have a major role because of vaccines. And that's absolutely not what we're seeing. And, you know, even the, the companies like Regeneron CEO Len Schleifer in the press release about this big deal made sure to put up, you know, at the top that vaccination is what people should be doing to try to end this pandemic. Um, you know, interestingly also. Jeff Porges at Leer Inc. had a no doubt about this, this massive deal. And he said that, you know, anecdotal reports from all over the US suggest that access to all COVID antibodies remains extremely challenging, which he attributes to a combination of provider ignorance, scarcity of supply, and persistent logistic difficulties with access. He calls it probably the most frustrating aspect of the pandemic response today. And he says it does not appear to have been effectively addressed so far by any of the COVID antibody companies, which is really Interesting, like how much of this should be taken care of by the companies, how much of this should be better facilitated by government at the federal, state, or local level. And I I think a lot of people would disagree with Jeff that this is the most frustrating (laughs) aspect of the pandemic response today. Um, but it is fascinating to see such effective drugs still not really be able to make that much of a dent, although they must be making some of a dent as they're being used so broadly. Um, it's just not enough, you know, to really to keep people from from filling up hospital beds.
2: So elsewhere in frustrating things about the pandemic, the debate over the potential necessity of booster shots of COVID-19 vaccines or third doses of mRNA vaccines, um, whatever your preferred nomenclature is, that has continued and has continued to get more and more awkward, I think, a little bit. As we know, the White House has called for the beginning of distribution of booster doses by the end of this month. But in the meantime, uh, experts, scientists, and physicians seem pretty skeptical of whether that's actually a necessity. And it kind of came to a head this week, both with the publication of a paper in The Lancet that casts a lot of doubt on that necessity, and also in documents that were made public uh, earlier this week ahead of a key meeting of the FDA's outside advisors, which is slated for Friday. So Meg, what's at stake going into into this meeting?
0: Friday's just going to be so fascinating, and we won't spend too much time talking about it now because it'll all be like trying to forecast what's going to happen. And many of you will probably be listening to this podcast after it's already happened. So we will go into this deeply next week with our special guest. Can I reveal who it is? Sure, go ahead. Scott Gottlieb! Oh, Scott, Scott Gottlieb, Gottlieb
1: is going to be on yes. the podcast.
0: Yay! Indeed. So we'll we'll do lots and lots of booster talk and vaccine talk and other pandemic talk. Um, but for people who are listening to this before Friday, um, it's going to be fascinating because there is a debate, even within the FDA itself, over whether boosters are needed because of a debate about whether protection against severe disease really wanes uh, to the degree that we need to boost that back up. And we've had Paul Offit, who is a member of the Advisory Committee, to the FDA. We've had him on the show, and he's told us he doesn't think we need boosters until we really see that waning in protection against severe disease. So we will see that get debated in the public sphere. We will see some folks from uh, Israel present their data um, to this panel, Um, and we'll get to see how Marion Gruber, um, who is one of the two departing FDA vaccine officials, um, how she treats this entire situation, because she and Phil Krause, who works with her, um, wrote that. Letter in the Lancet earlier this week saying that we don't need booster shots. So, um, if ever there was a time for a uh, you know lightning rod FDA vaccine advisory committee meeting, this one might be it. And I should add, I have a source in the government I was texting with yesterday saying, "Oh, I'm going to bring popcorn to this," and they were like, "I'm bringing a Bloody Mary."
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because you know we've seen these data showing that you know the vaccines have waning effect on preventing infection. And we've also seen data that they seem to have a sterling and durable effect at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. I know we'll see more data as time goes on, but that seems to be the tenor of all of it. So the discussion ends up being less about evidence per se, and more like a philosophical meditation on what do we mean by vaccine, right? Like, is it, do we want to prevent as many infections as possible? Or do we want, as you know, Paul Offit might say, to just keep people out of the hospital and try to stem the flow of this pandemic and avoid situations like what's happening, you know, right this second in the state of Idaho, for example. And so it'll be kind of be interesting to see both parties go back and forth, because it's not so much a fight over data as it is kind of, you Know what is the actual right approach? What do we want from a vaccine? What makes it successful in our minds?
0: Last topic of chatty, Kathy. Uh, JP Morgan 2022. Oh my, yes, gonna be in person in San Francisco. Who's going?
1: Yeah, right. So, uh, the so JP Morgan, the 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 investment bank that's sort of at the center of that that whole Michigan, uh, that whole thing <laughs> that we go to you know, in, in January, no, I like P. Go, P. Whatever, it's, whatever it is, you know. Um, this is our Yom Kippur episode, we could have a Michigan. Yeah, I know. I don't even know if that makes sense, but whatever. Yeah. So there they are. Apparently they've confirmed that they are going to try to have a live version. So people are going to be gathering at that small hotel in Union Square in San Francisco. Um, it seems like it's going to be limited in scope. I mean, they're going to try to limit participation or people who actually attend on site, but they want to have it live. So I guess the question is, it's like, what does that mean for the rest of us? Are, are we going or are we staying home? Well, Meg, what are you doing?
0: My answer is... I don't know.
1: You don't know, and and we don't know. I don't. I think, Damien, do you know if you're going? Do, I what, don't. What, what's Dad doing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm the, <laughs> the last person to ask,
2: but I do think that we're not the only ones facing this decision, obviously. And uh, what I think it depends on is not just J.P. Morgan, the constrained conference that takes place at the West in San Francisco, but rather like J.P. Morgan, the metonym for like the whole pageantry of the conference. And so just because the investment bank is having some version of their in-person conference, that doesn't necessarily mean that the circus that usually accompanies that will be there, which I think is the reason that a lot of people travel is things external to JP Morgan. A lot of people never even register for the conference, but still go. So until there's more clarity on just the extent to which nature is healing
1: uh, in biotech, I think a lot of people will be on the fence. Yeah, I mean, a lot can change between now and January, obviously. But you know, in in talking to some companies and I've kind of asked like, you know, certain companies, big and small, you know, what are you doing? Are you are you sending your executives to San Francisco for JP Morgan week or not? And and I've heard, you know, sort of variations of we're not sure. Yes, we're sending people, but we're only sending a select group. Oh, we might go for the day or two, but we're not going to be there for the entire week. So it seems like, you know, it's everyone is in the same boat. Everyone's sort of trying to figure out what the hell to do for that week.
2: Back in April, members of the ALS community were deeply frustrated when the Food and Drug Administration declined to consider what could be a potential treatment for ALS made by a company called Amelix, asking the company to run another clinical trial to get more data on whether its drug actually works. But this week, the FDA apparently had an about face about that and will now allow Amelix to apply for FDA approval with this treatment, which came to the delight of many in the patient community and also seemed to follow... With a kind of long-term pivot that we've seen in the FDA, Adam, you wrote this story. What uh, what happened?
1: Yeah, I just said, Damien. So this company, Amelix Pharmaceuticals, they're based up here in Cambridge. You know, they have this experimental treatment for ALS. It's actually a a combination of two older drugs. But, you know, they ran this study last year. Uh, it was a small study, uh, but it was randomized. It was placebo controlled. And it did show that their drug could slow the progression of ALS. Um, and so they had hoped to file on that. But the FDA, like you said, the FDA last April told them, you know, we want you to run another study that there's n- the data from from that first study is encouraging, but maybe not strong enough to file for approval, so run another study. So fast forward to this summer, the company has uh, additional meetings with the FDA, and and the FDA seems to have changed its mind and, and says now that they can file. So they 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 did they announced this this week that they're going to file uh, for FDA approval based on that that previous that single study that they did.
0: And from the reporting that you did, what can you glean changed? Was it the precedent set by aducanumab and the ability to you know, to file for accelerated approval based on on biomarker data from from earlier stage trials, because you actually explain it's not biomarker data that they're using here. So, what do you think is the reason for it?
1: That's a great question. Why did the FDA change his mind? And the answer is not entirely clear. Uh, now, if you talk to the advocacy community, which I did, and the major like I uh, like IMALS and the ALS Association, they're taking credit for this. They're saying that the pressure that they've applied. To the FDA. You know, they've lobbied the FDA, they've sent petitions, they've testified in front of Congress. And, and, a lot of it just around the fact that they feel like the FDA is not taking them seriously. That that they're not doing enough to accelerate the development of new treatments for ALS, and that was all exacerbated by the decision that the FDA made to approve Aduhelm, as you said, because they felt like you know if if the flexibility that the agency gave to Biogen to approve Aduhelm, um, you know that that also should be applied to companies developing treatments for ALS. So they're sort of spiking the football. They're saying, you know, our pressure was uh was instrumental in in sort of convincing the FDA to allow this filing. Um that's probably partly true. Um it, it's hard to really say because the FDA, of course, is not really saying very much about kind of why it did this. And we're only getting a version of the events from from Anux and, you know, regulators aren't speaking about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, this kind of underlines something we've talked about, I think, quite often on this show is just the FDA's monastic commitment to silence makes all of these conversations one-sided. I'm not saying Amelix is being dishonest or any of the other companies we've discussed necessarily, but we get only kind of one side of the story until, and I think we can assume... Uh, after Amelix submits this drug for approval, there will be a public hearing where the data will be debated by outside experts. And that might be the first time that we ever get a glimpse of what the FDA actually thinks. So in this moment, and I understand why advocates are pleased and and are, I don't want to say self-congratulatory, but feel like they played a role in this. That makes perfect sense. But there could be another shoe yet to drop once we actually see the agency's opinion.
1: Yeah, and it's really important to understand that filing a drug and getting a drug approved are completely different.
0: Well, on that note, Adam, can you tell us, like, how how does the drug work? Like, what's the mechanism of action? And from the data that have been seen so far, how much hope, like real hope, optimism, um, do you think there is from experts in the field that this could be a helpful drug for ALS, which is one of just the most heartbreaking diseases?
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, And forgive me, but I forgot the mechanism for this drug. Like I said, it's a combination of two drugs. And and off the top of my head, I forgot exactly sort of how it's supposed to work against the ALS, but, you know, the data, I mean, look, the, the study was, it, it was a, it was a well-run study. It was actually published in, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and like I said, uh, the, the drug does seem to slow the progression of the disease, which is important. It, that's kind of the endpoint that's used um, in clinical trials for ALS. But at the same time, there were some questions about the data. Um, you know, the benefits seemed sort of modest Um, on other sort of parameters like breathing, respiratory, which is a big, Big part of ALS, a lot of a lot of ALS patients, you know, have trouble breathing, um, and they actually die from respiratory arrest. Um, there was no benefit there. And then, in terms of survival, you know, does, are these drugs helping the patients live any longer? Um, that was also just, it's also sort of unclear. So when the study was published last year, um, I think people were encouraged, but maybe not entirely convinced that this drug is truly effective. Uh, for ALS. So that's the big risk, right? I think, and, and as this progresses, as they file, and we will see, um, the, you know, the FDA is known to do a lot of its own analyses of clinical data. So there could be things in the in the study that we don't know about yet that will surface later on in the review. And maybe there will be an advisory panel meeting for this drug, and we'll find out more. But like I said, I think it is really important to for people to understand that, you know, while this is good news this week, for sure, you know, it doesn't mean that the drug is going to be approved. So the connection to Adjuhelm here is more than just uh, tenuous, I
2: guess, because this all falls under the FDA's Department of Neuroscience, which is led by Billy Dunn, a guy we spent a lot of time talking about here, who was, of course, integral to the approval of Adjuhelm. Adam, as you kind of thought about this story, I mean, what role does this sort of the Billy Dunn aspect play in in what appears to be an FDA about face?
1: Yeah, you know, it is interesting, right? Uh, Billy Dunn, like you said, had this pivotal role in the Adjahelm review and approval decision. And and he is the man who will also uh, be in charge of or oversee the review of this Amelix drug. So, you know, the same same group of reviewers inside the agency are, are looking at this drug as looked at uh, Adjahelm. And I guess we'll we'll wait to see is sort of what you know it, what impact, if any, of maybe or sort of residual impact um, that may have on on this review. Oh my gosh. <laughs> The voice you just heard is Mariella Majedic. She's the wife of Jerry Majedic, an Iraq war veteran. In that video,
2: which you can watch on Stats website and on YouTube, Mariella is reacting with joy and astonishment as she watches Jerry use his brain to control a robotic hand for the first
0: time. Last summer, Jerry was the first patient to undergo a groundbreaking type of arm amputation designed to enable the brain to perceive and control a prosthetic hand as if it was their own. The surgical technique and the companion robotic prosthetics are still being refined, but this cutting-edge science has the potential to benefit thousands of wounded veterans.
1: Stat managing editor Gideon Gill and documentary filmmaker Matthew Orr uh, Matt is also a former STAT colleague, have been following the scientists, the technologists, the surgeons, and the patients who are making mind-controlled bionic limbs real. Gideon joins us to tell us more. Gideon, welcome back to the podcast.
3: It's wonderful to be here, Adam.
1: So Gideon, this is obviously
2: a a cool science story, and we want to get to that aspect of it in a moment. But first, could you tell us about Jerry and Mariella? This is very much a human story as well. So you know, can you tell us how Jerry, with his wife's support, came to be the first patient to undergo this experimental surgery?
3: Yes, so they're a really inspiring couple. I, I've, uh, Matt and I followed them for much of the past year, and it's really been uh, a lot of a lot of fun. Actually, um, they so Jerry was grievously wounded in a bombing in two thousand five in Iraq, just south of Baghdad. Uh, he was an army staff sergeant working in a, a psych, psychological operations unit and was targeted by. Um, insurgents um, and he barely barely was alive suffered burns over much of his body um, including uh, all of his face and head and uh, and significantly for the for this procedure um, his right hand uh, he lost two fingers the thumb and pinky and the tips of the other three fingers and it was very badly burned and for 15 years, he put up with this, uh, really, um, crippling pain. And, you know, he was actually offered the opportunity for an amputation. It was suggested to him some years ago. And he said, no, he, he didn't want to lose the the chance to hold the hand of Mariella. And, and they're really an incredible couple. She herself is a, she's a nurse who works with, uh, Amputees at the VA, and um, so she understood. I think a lot of what Jerry was going through, and really was the one that pushed him to go to Walter Reed uh, National Military uh, Medical Center uh, to to have um, to do something once and for all about the the, the pain he was having.
0: I thought that was so moving in the story how you described how he wanted to be able to feel Mariella's hand when he held it, but you also described the the long years of um, struggling with that pain and wanting to avoid taking too many opioid painkillers for fear of addiction, um, and how amputation may perhaps be started to be looked at differently um, as a way to alleviate that pain. And, and these surgeries could potentially help get there to think of this as a better solution for folks. Maybe tell us about how this procedure is different from what's been done in the past and what the goal of it is.
3: Yeah. So in the standard amputation procedure, uh, which is really essentially the same as it's been since, you know, Civil Warrior, you've, we've all seen those images, those, those, you know, black and white images of um, field amputations. It's essentially the same surgery. They have better anesthesia now and, and stuff, but w- what's, what they do in that operation is they cut the muscles that um, and they're left disconnected. And that's important because we know where our muscles are in space, where our limbs are in space and how we're moving them because of a sense called proprioception. And that relies on muscle pairs being connected. uh, So that when one muscle contracts, uh, the paired muscle stretches. There are sensors or receptors in our muscles that signal the brain about the movement of our limbs. And that's how we know where they are in space. And what this procedure does is to reconnect uh, and restore this sense in people who undergo this procedure. And, And what this is allowing and what you what you um, saw or heard rather in this uh, clip that we played at the beginning of this segment is uh, Jerry, you know, moving his moving a prosthetic hand that's wired to the to his uh, residual limb, and what he says and what he told me is that he actually feels like the hand is. It, that, it, that he actually still feels his hand and fingers when after this procedure, because of this sense of proprioception. And what it's allowing to get back to your point, Meg, is that it's now amputation has long been seen as uh, um, an admission of failure. Like you try everything else to reconstruct a, a hand or a foot. And when it, and when nothing works, you just say, okay, we're going to cut it off. And you know, you're going to live with it that way. Um, but now it's actually being seen increasingly as a, as a reconstructive procedure, that you can actually restore function, not just eliminate pain, but restore function, near natural function to these people.
1: So the video, and everyone really should go watch the video, it, it really is amazing to watch Jerry you know controlling this robotic hand and 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 getting he's controlling it with his mind right it's i mean the prosthetic is is attached to the muscles in in what's left of his arm but it's his mind right he's thinking about moving the hand the the fingers and and then the fingers actually move
3: that's how it works exactly adam the your when he thinks about moving his his fingers like making a fist the muscle, there are still muscles in his arm that, that are the same muscles that uh, connected to the, that, that moved those fingers. So his brain is still thinking, when he thinks about moving those fingers, those muscles are moving. And he wears a sleeve around his arm, the residual part of his arm, with sensors in it. And those sensors pick up the activity of the specific muscles that are moving. And they're wired, that's wired into this prosthetic device. That's an advanced robotic prosthetic with a computer, a tiny computer in it that reads these signals and then, t- and then translates that into which finger should be moving and how they should be moving. And it can also rotate the wrist of the, uh, of the prosthetic hand. It's very cool to watch on the video.
2: So, Gideon, you and Matt have been following the development of this technique and this technology for quite some time, and it was first developed for people requiring a leg amputation. Is that uh, indication further along than uh, than using it for hands?
3: Yes. so this all began, it was pioneered by um, scientists at MIT Media Lab, uh, Hugh Herr, who's himself a double amputee, and a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital in Boston, um, Matt Carty. And they developed this procedure, and they began using it uh, in patients uh, for leg uh, amputations. Uh, And they've now done 30 of those, Um, 24, I think, 24 below knee or 25 below knee and the rest above knee. And we actually document, uh, Matt and I worked together on a full-length documentary called Augmented, uh, that documents the first patient to undergo that procedure. Um, I mean, and Jim Ewing, and they actually call the uh, below-limb amputation the Ewing amputation uh, to honor him. Uh, Dr. Carty uh, told me recently about one patient who was out hiking with a uh, with his prosthetic, and he walked through a stream, and he actually had the sensation of water. Flowing over his prosthetic leg. Now he has no feeling in that leg, but yet <laughs> that, that's <he> amazing. Felt <laughs> that really water amazing. going over his foot.
0: Well, and you at the end of the story, you kind of come back to that idea with Mariella and Jerry, and you tell the story about how Jerry reached for her hand with his amputated right arm. And they were so excited that he did that, but then also sad realizing that he he didn't have that feeling. And they, they hope that maybe that might be the next step for these kinds of prosthetics.
3: Yes. So we're still, you know, it's important to realize that as promising as all this is, we're still very early in this, in developing this technologies. And in some sense, the surgical technology is now somewhat more advanced than the um, electromechanical um limbs and and so um they're doing a lot to try to improve like improve the the technology for example they're working on mag- implanting magnetic beads into the muscles so that the sensors would be able to more um to pick them up um Almost like with a Bluetooth and uh, and more, much with much more fine-grained accuracy, tell how the muscles are moving and what the what the uh, person intends for their fingers and hands or feet to be doing. Uh, so that's probably uh, Professor Hurr estimates that's five or more years away from actual commercial use. So everyone
1: in STAT has seen the augmented uh, documentary. It's, it's incredible. Um, when will the broader general public get a chance to see that?
3: Well, we can't formally announce anything yet. But what I will say is that uh, everyone should look uh, for it uh, early next year on, uh, on TV. Gideon, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa
2: Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose.
2: Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you're going to JP Morgan 2022. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.